In order for shame to be rendered powerless in our lives, we must be witness. We must be seen. Your gifting is going to seem like things that are just very obvious. They're going to seem like, well, everybody can be this welcoming. Everybody can see that moment where I just saw it. They're going to feel like anybody could do it. And that's what makes it your gifting. Watch how people avoid the face of somebody in need or asking who makes you uncomfortable. Every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has done for us. And then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be. Welcome back to Meta Dragon. I'm Blaine. <laughs> and I'm Sam. And if you're new around here, you may not know that Metadragon signals something important. Yes. What is that, Blaine? Metadragon means that you should not listen to this episode on one and a half speed. Oh, okay. Oh, you want to know something crazy? No. <laughs> I was catching up on Meat Eater. Okay. Last week. And you can watch Mediator on one and a half speed? You can watch Netflix shows on accelerated speeds now. Oh, you know. Just in case. That's going to kill dad. <laughs> that, it, it wasn't enough to binge. It wasn't enough to skip the intro. It's like the point now is really, can I consume as much of this as possible? It's the, uh, it's the ultimate gluttony. Of, yeah, it's a pie eating contest. <laughs> but it's like, what about the pacing? What about... The art, what about the flavor? No, no, no. Volume. There is no satisfaction apart from gorging. So what you're saying is a Meta Dragon episode is not a pie eating contest. No, it's not. Got it. Uh, today's Meta Dragon episode, mind bending, slightly more idea heavy episode, is going to start with something that's very interesting. I hope the whole thing's interesting. I can't guarantee that. <laughs> it could drag in the middle. No. So, you know how, like right now, do this experiment. Yeah. All right, close your eyes. Okay. Keep them closed. Okay. Now put your hand on your phone. Oh. Bam. Got it. It wasn't even a problem. All right. Keep them closed. Now, take a drink of your... Coffee? Whoa. Yep. Okay. So, those two motions were basically perfect. That is the, the basis of a really intriguing sense of how does the body know where it is in space? How do you know where you are? You know, people say we have five senses and then, but now we know that the list is much, much longer than that. We didn't know that. <laughs> we, sometimes it's hard to name all five senses. Smell, taste, Smell, taste touch, taste. You did taste twice. I like to repeat myself. <laughs> That's why there's more than I five. I like to be thorough. I see how you're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> taste, aesthetic taste. <laughs> taste in people. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Wait, why are there more? Taste, touch, sight, sound. And what are the other ones? Proprioception, people. vestibular motion, oh. etc. Next piece of explaining why proprioception and vestibular motion are so interesting. First, do you want to tell us what those are? Proprioception is... Uh, sensory neurons in your joints that keep track of like extension and load, but they don't do a good job of keeping track of things like rotational momentum and translation. Like if you move without 
changing the position of a joint. So when your arms move, but it's because you're flexing from your hips. Yeah. You can, you can sense the movement of the air, but even if not, it's just it's absolutely incredible. You can still figure out what your arms are. I know all this because of my injuries, right? My hamstring injuries, my, my ankle injuries, and what it's taken to be able to not sprain my ankle every time I go running. Mm-hmm. One of the worst things that happens when you injure your ankle is that you damage your ankle's proprioception, hmm. which is... Your ankle, because you've stretched tendons and ligaments, it has a hard time knowing where it is in space. So you put it down, and you don't put it down flat. You put it down at an angle, and you roll it again. That's wild. Well, it gets wilder. Okay. Okay, good. So proprioception on its own is fairly intuitive, and it goes, we have this sense, and just know that there are some kinesiologists or real scientific types listening to this saying, Blaine, you're not really... You're not really capturing all of it. That is true. But proprioception includes joints being able to keep track of like how far they've moved. That is not, in, you know, in and of itself crazy. What is crazy is that, Sam, when your house is pitch black, mm-hmm. can you still walk around your main level? Mostly. I, I mean, in, in broad daylight, I still bang my toes on stuff. <laughs> I know. The, kid, the kids really mess this up because there's always something new. There's always something that... Yeah, the coffee table is constantly in a different place. Okay. What's really interesting about that is that your body is able to integrate a memory, which is an immaterial representation of the room with your motion, your vestibular motion, your proprioception, and you can move around without walking to the wall if you've been in this space often enough. But even crazier is that if you know the kind of landscape you're in, you can often also move. It's like when you go hiking at night, it's amazing that you don't trip more often given how irregular the ground actually is. Mm. This is all by way of introducing a concept Uh, Called proprioception. (laughs) Which is how much work it takes to know where you are, to actually uh, be confident in your position in the world, and how hard your, your whole body has to work to not be trapped or destroyed because you forgot something by a blind spot. Who just said the title? You're welcome, Alan, our producer. You can call this one vestibular blind spots in an age of notional locomotion. That will give everybody fair warning as to what they're (laughs) about to get into. Wow. Like all of our podcasts, this one originated in a conversation. Mm -hmm. What do you remember about that conversation? Um, It's it's been a hot minute. <laughs> it has been a while. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of a blind spots, we were just doing this um, exercise actually last night. Um, there's, there's a little thing you can do for literal blind spots where there's uh, a circle and a, a plus sign and they're on a piece of paper. And you close one eye and you look, let's say you close your left eye and you with your right eye, you look to the left piece. As you get closer and closer, 
to get to this right distance where the the other object, the other symbol will disappear because it's right at the point where your optic nerve exits the back of your eye. So there yeah. is no photoreceptor back there. So you do have a literal blind spot in your eye that having two eyes lets you not notice that something disappears. And I find it terrifying. People love it because it's a wonderful metaphor of like, hey, we have these blind spots and we need multiple eyes on something. And I go, oh my gosh, I can't be trusted. There's a literal place I can't see with both my eyes and I didn't know that. So that's where the conversation came from a while ago, more on the metaphorical sense, was the conversation of, hey, I'm aware that I'm unaware of where those are in my life, in the way that I live, the person that I am. I'm aware I have blind spots and I want the tools or the strategies or the input to begin noticing them. And it was like, oh, that's a great idea. And then we all scratched our chins and said, how do you find those things? <laughs> you begin by talking about your elbow in You begin space. by talking about proprioception. Proprioception is going to become relevant a little later in the conversation. Okay. That's something you need to have in mind as we begin to talk about blind spots. And you're right. It's much easier to talk about having blind spots than resolving blind spots. But the more that you know about how serious and how widespread blind spots are, mm -hmm. the better positioned you are to see your own life accurately. Right. I mean, it sounds like what we want, right? We want to have like a, a good self-assessment of ourselves. I don't want to have blind spots. I don't, for instance, want to think, hey, I'm really nailing it in my marriage and be totally blind to the ways that I'm causing harm or failing or being an off-base assessment of myself. Like that's terrifying that that might be the case. So this is sort of like a um, give me more tools other than licking my finger and holding it up to the wind to tell what direction <laughs> the wind is coming from. Like give me more tools for self-assessment and understanding for the sake of trying to eliminate these things or at least become aware of when they exist. Yes. One thing I think is interesting about our time, about post-modernity where we live, is that blind spots have actually become a little bit of a point of pride. And I think it's fascinating. But I, I don't know what you mean by that. Like what, what do you mean? Flesh it out. Get people talking about politics. Don't get them having a conversation with a person with a different set of views. Get them monologuing. And you'll observe something really interesting. I can almost guarantee you this will happen eventually. They'll go, I just don't get, or how can those people think blank? And there's often a kind of enlightened dismissal mm. Or some people are just crazy. And I go, wait, I'm sorry. What you're saying is you can't see how another person got to the point where they are now. And you're saying that as though it's a problem with them. But it's actually a problem with your vision. Even in the shape of that sentence, which I think is so funny. It's like, I just don't get. The eye is still the subject, which would suggest that the problem 
is with the monologuer, not with the Republicans or the Democrats or the Libertarians or whoever it is that's being castigated. Wow. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. No. Before we get into the, some of the toolkit of how do you find them, do you need to find them, what's witch hunting for blind spots versus just being committed to the path of maturity, a couple of things are really important to name. And how it works is that at every scale, you will find a set of blind spots. So on the individual level, like a person, there will be things about their own life, there will be things about the world that they just can't see, which mm -hmm. is wonderfully represented in the blind spot in a person's eye. But then go, I think the next one that's interesting is the family dimension and what happens when you bring a friend or girlfriend or a spouse into your family. Mm -hmm. Like, do you remember some of Susie's first observations? Uh, <sighs> at this point, uh, less and less. But I immediately knew what you were referring to in that experience of having an, an outside set of eyes that I trust get into the family dynamic was really disruptive. It was really like, oh, no, we're not, we're not weird. This is the way that everybody should do things. Or the way that that person just interacted with this other person or me or certain traditions or, or the way that we have uh, was just sort of brought out into the light by having Susie's eyes on things, by having somebody else walk in the house and go, hey, it kind of smells like, I don't know. Leather. <laughs> fresh baked bread. Or it smells a like you guys don't like uh, Dawn detergent. I don't know. Like, that's funny. It's usually the detergent. That's the thing that you smell in most people's houses. Totally. Right. I mean, I say Cody from down the street, and it's like immediate. It's the air fresheners and cigarette smoke. And it's like, yes. I, Which for, didn't, is, for me, it's a very cozy smell because Cody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, exactly. Isn't that interesting? But yes. I remember Susie. Until somebody else cast another set of eyes on it, it felt like there was nothing worth noting. Which was crazy because once wives came in, what they pointed out seemed unmissable. Right. You guys seem to be a family of introverts or something. You guys spend a lot of time in your own spaces. And it was like, yeah, we do, but that's how, that's just good. <laughs> Right. And we are the normal family. And so, yeah, uh, okay. after we have dinner together, <laughs> after we talk or go over. Or how about this? Uh, Susan and I flew into town, and it was just us and mom and dad. And I don't know, we got in kind of late-ish, but all of a sudden it was like 9 o'clock, and our parents went, well, good night. We'll see you in the morning. And Susie was so thrown off by it because in her family, it would have been break out the cheeses, break out the crackers. We're going to sit around the kitchen table until 1 in the morning. I walked in on that. I'm like, that's crazy. What are you doing? Like, it's, it's nine o'clock. Everybody should be going to, <laughs> Go to bed. Go to bed. Why are you still awake? <laughs> uh, the family one is one of my favorites. The sort of the next scale, we're, we're going to jump a few, but this works at every level of analysis. So it works on the individual level. It works on the, the relational level, works on the family, and then whatever the community is inside of which your family is nested will have the same kinds of glaring blind spots. And certainly on the cultural level, the cultural level is the one that's more, most interesting to academic and scholarly types most of the time. For example, just to use two guys, the, the formative 
rhetorician of the 20th century, this guy named Kenneth Burke. And what he called it was a terministic screen. And so what he noticed, and what was valuable in Burke, is he noticed that different groups could hear the same story and take away entirely different points. And then he divided the the sort of sign we called the scientific description from uh, the dramatistic. And what he said is that no one actually lives in the scientific. What the scientific would be the description of a thing apart from purpose. This is otherwise described as like the separation of fact and value and go, the scientific wants to say that this is just the way it is. And what I love that Burke pointed out is he goes, everyone pretends to live there. No one lives there. No one relates to the world that way. And he used the metaphor of drama because he goes, we're all playing roles and we're all walking out stories and everything in the story that we identify is either sort of positive or negative. So when we see a fact, it always has value attached to it. And I, by the way, think that's the right way, the accurate way to view the world. Mm. And what he was trying to do is go, uh, listen, people, you think that when you talk about, you know, let's say urban poverty, that it's possible to just go out and empirically you know, pick out some givens in the world and then hold those up in a disinterested way. Kenneth Burke goes, that is impossible. People act out roles in stories. So when you go out and assess facts about urban poverty, it's always going to be in relation to your story about human flourishing, what people are for. And and that will shape even the kinds of information you go get. And so if you think that, you know, humans are mostly just working animals, you might go out and go, urban poverty is is damaging because look at the household income and then look at the household wealth and look at the inter- intergenerational wealth and you'll grab facts relative to that story. Mm-hmm. If you think people are fundamentally raci- relational animals, you'll go out and go look at the absence of fathers, look at the damage to attachment and loving relationship. And what Burke wanted to point out is that your culture has a story about reality through which it is interpreting everything. And it makes a ton of sense, especially as he begins to to lay it out. And I, I'm also, I'm internally experiencing a little bit of like, I don't know what the word is, maybe like surrender or um, dismissal as we're wrestling with this because it sort of goes, oh, if narrative and blind spot and culture really does apply on all of those levels. It's, I have a personal one. I have a family one. I have a close um, community one. Then I've got a cultural one. And we have one as humankind sort of go like, well, that's then the water we swim in and we can't 
change that. And there's some part of me that just begins that internal experience of, oh, well, then it's impossible to really identify these blind spots because we'd have to get so outside of our own culture or so outside of our own family that there would be some loss there, some tearing. I would, I would have to lose some part of myself in order to really get that separate and have that outside set of eyes. So it's sort of like, well, um, so it is what it is. I'm so happy that you are saying this right now. Ah, perfect, Sam. Oh, good. I'm glad that my surrendering nailed is it, nailed it, nailed it. Yes, <laughs> it's the experience that I think a lot of people have the first time they do a, a missions trip over a border. That yeah, they use the same example. They come back and they're like, "Oh, I'm not the same person anymore. Like something in me is gone forever because it was so jarring, tearing. Even if it's a really positive experience, there's still a tearing. You still walk back in your house going, "Oh, I didn't realize it smelled." a bit like cedar in here and I have so many things I didn't realize. You know, it, it's a, maybe a bit of um, a painful process. This is the important inflection point in uh, the conversation about blind spots actually is that there is a momentum towards nihilism or agnosticism. Mm. And... Glad I heard that train boarding. Choo-choo! <laughs> Which is the same as saying people can't figure it out for themselves. And they realize that and either become <sighs> agnostics or nihilists yeah. or some iteration of relativist where. Yeah. Because. Because if I can't, then what's the point? You're familiar with the book Flatland. Uh, oh, yes. About the shapes. And oh, yeah. Oh, well, yes. Now I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> about the, about well, the sphere mm. you're going through and the, talking to the square. I mean, yeah. Uh, Did you want to flash that out to anybody who's not familiar? Uh, so, no, I don't. <laughs> I want, <laughs> you want to reference it, though. I want to reference it. Okay, so Flatland is this mathematical but really philosophical parable where you have a uh, square living on a flat plane. Yep. And it sees a sphere passing through the flat plane. And it, what it notices is all it sees when it sees the sphere is like changing a changing size of circle on the ground mm-hmm. because it doesn't have a third dimension of perception. Right. And the sphere has to explain to the square that there is another dimension of reality. And finally, the sphere just takes the square and makes it into a cube. And by being made a cube, the square understands and goes, wow, what's the next level, right? What, what's yeah. the next level of reality? And then the, the sphere just smothers the cube because it's too complicated. Exactly. The sphere goes, well, there is no next one. And the, the former squared now cube repeats all the arguments of this one shouldn't have existed. Transcendent, yeah, order to the sphere. Eventually, the sphere just throws the cube back into the flat plane and it becomes a square again. And choo choo nihilism. <laughs> Well, and, and you go, this is the important story because if you, you leave your first culture and you go on your mission trip or you live overseas or you just move out of your house and you realize that uh, there are other important dimensions to being a person that your culture ignored. Mm-hmm. But eventually you're going to go to a third culture or a fourth culture and realize, well, maybe this is um, what postmodern theorists call a simulacrum. Maybe there's just another one and another one and another one and another one forever. Yeah, like when you take the vanity mirror and you sort of 
turn it towards the the big mirror behind the sink. Yes, exactly. You stick your hand in there and you're like, oh, there's a bajiggywillion of them. Uh, my favorite thing about this is could go, yes, uh, apart from God, that is the human situation. And that's why you have uh, so much nihilism and so little meaning in a secular age that has simply decided we're not going to count any supernatural information as information. It gives you mercy for why we've ended up where we are, right? Because if it is this moment of post postmodern and relativism, you, you understand how somebody gets there by experiencing a little bit of this. You go, I left my first culture to my second culture to my third culture to, and feeling how this just continues and spirals and expands it would be very easy to throw up your hands and go, oh, well, everything is just relative because there's so many areas that are so different and so many different ways of understanding that there is no truth. There's no baseline. And you do. You board the the choo-choo train of nihilism and drive straight into post-modernity. <laughs> Fortunately, the uh, progression of the wisdom literature of the Bible is already has a solution for this problem. That is fortunate, Blaine. <laughs> Which is, you know... Ah, uh, like the Proverbs are a little bit like optimistic, but perhaps naive stage one where it goes, live like this because this is the right way to live. And then the Proverbs are followed by the Ecclesiastes, which are like, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, going to say Ecclesiastes. And, you know, how the word Ecclesiastes doesn't actually use the word meaningless. It uses the word smoke, which has a substance, but you can't grab it. But it doesn't end with Ecclesiastes. People that I know back in the old college type days would, were very into Ecclesiastes if they had uh, any relationship with the Bible at all. And it was like... Those Christian schools. Yeah, but keep going and go because the book of Job is the culmination of uh, the wisdom tradition. And it's like... Which is an incredible place to land uh, wisdom and go... What you actually need is an encounter with God. Mm. What you actually need is to have a God who uh, has a higher order of existence tell you about the world. Mm. And one of my favorite things is like, uh, is he trustworthy? Yes. Proven track record. That's why we've got the Old Testament. Does he actually direct and intervene and explain uh, the core dimensions of human life? Yes, totally. Without that, you just kind of left, I don't know, being a pragmatist, naive, optimistic nihilist. Optimistic nihilism is an interesting idea. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Okay, hang on. I think most why this is a meta dragon. (laughs) Okay, so, like, work me back into blind spots and how we can even possibly see them, find them, respond to them. Yeah. Well, it's, we have to make a pit stop in... Optimistic nihilism? No. We have to make a pit stop in the wisdom literature. We have to make a pit stop here because otherwise a conversation about blind spots will like only lead to a kind of resignation. And it's like, yes, but can I ever have a real Mm. picture of my life and of my times and go, yes, over time, uh, because God 
gives it to you, is trustworthy, walks it out, um, makes reality visible, and also is okay that you can't see everything right away. Like, likes the slow process of development and uh, likes the growth of vision that characterizes a person's life. So once we have that to stop us from sliding away into, oh my gosh, well, I don't know what I don't know, so I guess it's just kind of never going to matter and I'm not going to think about it again and what is real. <laughs> Which is actually what <laughs> it's a happened. good place to avoid. Someone said you can. something pretty similar to that when we were in our planning meeting where we talked about this episode. <laughs> yeah. One of the guys was like, oh, then how do you, how do you, and I'm like, oh, wait, hey, come on. Easy. Transcendence easy. is how you know, bro. Oh. But once you have transcendence and the confidence that, no, you actually can have an on-time accurate picture of your life, then we can talk about, and what are some of the ways a person who is interested in the, in the maturation of their soul, what are some of the ways such a person discovers their blind spots and why do they do it? What? Not that I'm just having one of those moments. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm, having, I'm having a Metatragon moment. <laughs> I'm having a Metatragon moment. <laughs> What picture would you put on the sticker that says, I'm having a Metadragon moment? I don't know. Sort of maybe like Gary Larson's far side images. <laughs> I imagine me sitting at a table drinking a cup of coffee and there's just a, the giant eyeball in the window. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Lucky for us, the... Sages of the ages. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. I realized oh, no. right as I was a riot. Lucky for us. <laughs> no, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Before you give us the lucky for us, I'm struck by, as you say, like transcendence, how desperate we are as human beings to find self understanding. How many personality tests? How many. And quizzes to put you into a category. How many books, coaches, and self-help? And I mean, like the idea of self-understanding and the idea of seeing clearly who you are and what you are for dominates most of the literature and conversation out there about mm, anything outside of the sciences or the pure creativity sphere. Like, that's it. You get, you get sciences out of the way, you get creativity out of the way, and there's just this massive fire hose of self-actualization. <sighs> I'm like, okay, yeah, right. So trying to step into those waters and go like, it's, it's a, a deep human longing to understand these things. Yeah. And you are pointing to that the way that we understand reality, the way that we have understand who God is and who we are, how does he bring about that? Exactly. How is it that? There's my low and slow over the plate. Go on then. Blind. How do we understand it? How do we understand? If only well, there was a rhyming uh, thing. You're the therapist. <laughs> How do people come to Ages. understand themselves? <laughs> uh-huh. uh, blind spots are okay, but you still want to address them over time. <laughs> There are a lot of ways to do that. One of which is just acknowledging 
you have them. That doesn't mean you can't make good choices. That doesn't mean that you don't have a good picture. You don't rightly perceive the world. It just means that over time, you're going to want uh, to know more about what you don't know. Yeah. A really easy starting place for this that I think is interesting is it goes back to our boy Jim Wilder, who is a neurotheologian, his term, not mine, writes about brain science and its intersection with theology. But he was writing about emotions and uh, cultural blind spots. And he said something that was really interesting. He goes, all emotions are built to produce loving attachment. But we don't always know how. And so different cultures just write off different emotions. Mm. And there are bad ways to use their relationally formative effects and good ways to use their relationally formative effects. But to be like, uh, there are many cultures and pockets of culture, even here inside the United States, where people have no idea how to use anger to build loving relationship. Uh, because too often in, in our lives, anger is linked to immaturity or outright destructiveness. Mm-hmm. And to go, oh, but if you relate to a wholehearted person with a high level of self-control and you experience their anger it's actually part of what makes you safe in the world. Like, I hope you've had the experience of talking about something really bad that happened to a friend and they get angry on your behalf. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, anger is linked to justice. Anger is uh, one way of validating the value of people. Like, you should not have been treated that way. I am so mad and I'm not going to go throw a vase at the wall. Um, but you still feel in my anger something that makes you safer in the world. Uh, and it goes, uh, a really obvious cultural blind spot site is, hey, by the way, which of whatever the seven or however many there are right now, fundamental emotions, did your family or does your community not know how to use well? Sadness. Unfortunately, fear, it's probably more than just one. Anger, yeah. Right. Even the experience of shame, to go, we've gone, shame is only ever bad. Get rid of it. And it's like toxic shame is. But shame can actually be used to positively form loving attachment in a way that doesn't damage a person. Right, Because what you're thinking of is the life where there is no shame is one that actually just gets to live in sin and make any choice it wants and never feel any negative consequence of that. And you go, uh, that would be a pretty unhealthy and unhelpful trajectory to send you off on. Like, yeah, you can live however you want. And there's no, there's no bad feelings. There's no, there's no repercussions. Exactly. Like when I blow it with M, it's actually good that I don't feel fine until I reconcile. And to go, most people wouldn't act, identify that with shame, but it is, right? I go, I got to talk to you about this. I blew it. That's not the same as saying, I'm a bad person. I'll never be a good husband. I won't amount to anything. All of the toxic 
right? Like fusion climb into shame. the pickle jar. Climb shame into the and, pickle jar. Where I mean, there. I mean, who doesn't live in the pickle jar of shame sometimes? <laughs> no, for real, <laughs> it's a cozy, cozy place. But it's meant to bring about like conviction that leads to repentance. After which you're fine again. Right. How do you find these things? Some of the basic ones. I love the C.S. Lewis's and the George MacDonalds and the G.K. Chestertons and the St. Augustines, and they're all interested in solving this problem. Like, which means we for sure will. Uh, uh, they go. They're all interested in solving the problem. That's like I don't quite know uh, what my problem is. I just know that I have one. How do I find it? And they make great kinds of recommendations. Here's one of the easiest ones ever, and it's from C.S. Lewis. And it's, you remember his essay? You've read it uh, on reading old books. And he's like, you should read old books because two minds are not better than one because they won't make any mistakes. They won't make the same mistakes. So when you read old books, they'll take things for granted that your moment in history just ignores. Mm -hmm. And that can be really helpful. One of the reasons I actually want philosophy students to read Plato is because he has a supernatural worldview. And it's like, most philosophers are not like that. Um, but read Plato, and he is totally fine acknowledging the influence of spirits on human beings and understanding that they have motives, understanding that it's important to know what they are. But all that kind of gets bracketed. You know, we ignore that until you actually go read Republic and then are like, wait a second. Mm. Classical philosophers uh, were not atheists. They weren't even agnostic. They were very positive about meaning. That's crazy. None of the guys that I read are like that. This is what Chesterton and orthodoxy calls true democracy, where he's like, you actually have to add in what have all people across time thought? Not like what is the consensus in your moment, but go all the way back, all these other people who had the same ability to perceive truth that you have and the same ability to fail, consider what they saw and you'll end up in a less blind position. Ugh. Which really, between both of those, suggests that our moment is perhaps the strongest set of blinders we can put on. We are constantly living in just this, this second, and now this second, or maybe even this day. And it's really, really hard to see beyond that. And if we only live in this moment, that perhaps lends itself to the biggest blind spots and the, the patterns of living in them. Correct? Yeah, totally. Yeah. This was a thing. You talk about the neuroscience guy and emotions and connection. I've wrestled with this, that... So much of our mind, so much of our, our being, like we are meant for connection. We live in community. Community is meant to ground us. And yet we have essentially all these little solipsistic existences. Like though I am meant for mirroring and connecting and understanding through other people, at the end of the day, it is really easy because it is my only experience just to live in my own head and to mm. stop being curious about other people's. So it is easy to like work your way further and further down that track into just living in the moment and ignoring not only uh, the views of 
humanity over time or not reading old books, but just to go, no, it's just me, and it's just me in today. That's so huge. Of course, (laughs) these all come down to, like, other people and God. Those are your strategies for uh, identifying your blind spots and not being handicapped by them. Like, I asked you a couple weeks ago, we were having a conversation about my house, and, you know, we're thinking of selling right now, and how I've learned to phrase the question, and as you was like, what do you see that I'm not seeing that would be good for me to know right now? Yeah, right? Because the immature uh, question is the, hey, what am I not seeing? And you sort of go like, well, there's a lot that you're not seeing, and a lot of that might not be helpful and might not be motivated from a place of help. And there's many friends that I would not ask that question for, like, hey, what am I missing? Oh, do you want to just hand somebody, I don't know, a, a butcher's knife and say, hack away, please? Uh, no. No, it'd be a very painful experience. No, and, you know, I think we've all had experiences. I certainly have had experiences where people try to point out blind spots apart from love or apart from the timing of God. And it does harm because not only do I ignore them, but then I'm less likely to see that blind spot in the future. I harden my heart against that information, so it backfires. Oh, I know that we, probably everybody's thinking of a very specific story where that's happened to them, and that maybe over a decade you can come back to that and go, you know, that person wasn't motivated in love and it wasn't the right time, and now I'm finally able to go back into those places and go, but they weren't totally wrong. And that's like best case scenario. Maybe those places are forever locked down. And I can think of many people where that's the case of something spoken in the wrong time from the wrong person with the wrong motive. That is off limits until Jesus comes back. Oh, man. So just a couple more in this conversation. There are two questions that I have found to be very helpful in talking with friends about uh, familial and cultural blind spots. Family is a good one. Because there's going to be so many and it's such an easy conversation yeah, to have. Yeah, exactly. There's oh. definitely no uh, potential for harm there. <gasps> Why is the family a good one? Uh, maybe not a good one in the terms of... <laughs> <laughs> Rich with opportunity. Rich with opportunity. <laughs> Thinking of all of the observations that Susie and I offered in wisdom and immaturity to the other about our families in the early days that, like, oh my gosh, couldn't be heard for several years. Yes. No, it's leave my family alone. So don't come in when you're uh, trying to find family or cultural blind spots with, like, you're so messed up. Uh, <laughs> Though you are, and so am I. <laughs> but I found it really helps to go this way, like, talking with a friend about his family and go, first question, what does your family nail about the kingdom of God? And I've done this. When people are really riled up about politics, I like to do this as well and go, hey, uh, the redeemed form of a libertarian, like what portion of the kingdom do they have? Mm. And even, you know, the most whatever— the the person who's the furthest from being a libertarian will often be able to have like a, well, I think uh, 
what they get is like the value of individuals as such. One thing like they they carry and they steward uh, a deep care uh, for people as free creatures. And the next question would be like, and what do they need to know? Which is not the same as what are they missing? But to be like, what would be helpful for them to know? And man, you can do this with any community that you're a part of. I've done this conversation with guys who are all in a small group together. And, you know, we're trying to figure out what we need to do better, what we're missing in the season. And one-on-one, I'll be like, I'll ask kind of two questions that are very similar to that. Like, what does our small group do great? Um, what are we nailing? And then the person will be like, oh, well, we're nailing really hearing or we're nailing loving to talk about books or we're nailing that it's all about Jesus. And go like, okay, like, what do we need to know that would relax us to the point where we wouldn't be hostile to identifying a blind spot? Yeah, that's super good. Because the reality is on an individual level and a cultural level, we're probably missing quite a lot. And that's why the question of like, what do we need to know? What, what's right for this time? And that's where the role of God is so huge because he does have, he knows the right time. He knows what this season, this chapter is for. And rather than it being the deluge of, oh, I'm so glad you asked. There is so much that you are missing and not seeing, which can really cause you to double down and, and hunger into whatever it is that you already are doing to, out of safety. That beginning with what are you uniquely, what are you guys expressing well? And then what do you, what do you have? What's something that you need to hear or grow in or learn? I mean, it's probably just going to be like a thing rather yeah. than a deluge of all of the things that you're not missing. And that one thing will be much more likely to be accepted, be seen, be welcomed, and be able to be worked on. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I have found this to be so helpful in personal blind spots. And I'll talk about a current frustration or a decision that I'm trying to make. And if I go, what am I missing? Someone would go like, well, you're missing that the people in your life really should be a part of this. Like, you're Mm -hmm. missing that you shouldn't make this decision alone. But when I've asked it, it's like, what do I need to know? These are real examples. People have gone like, you just need to know that God will speak to you through people. And it's like, oh, yeah, he will. Oh, man, I didn't even realize. I wasn't asking people because I was kind of afraid that they would only speak out of their self and not out of love or their life with God. But God does speak through people. I forgot about that. Oh, man, I should make some people a part of this decision. The last one, last one for this conversation is uh, when you are in a world at war where Jesus is at war with depraved spirits over the destiny of the world, which has been decided. Uh, And now we're in the end game, Avengers style. Military metaphors are helpful. And uh, so there's the concept in military planning of a red team, which is like a group that is totally outside of your planning unit. And you go, okay, so... We think we're fighting this kind of enemy. We think they're in this kind of environment. Here is our plan. And then you show your plan to the red team and go, how would you beat this? Understanding that our lives take place in battle. 
that we do have an enemy who's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. Finding blind spots, especially around making decisions or the way you're living a season. I love asking guys, like, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. This is the way I'm going to try to do it. And if you were the enemy and you were going to try to blow this up, how would you do it? Uh, And let guys go. uh, Be like, I would go after the relationship between, you know, like uh, the wives, if those are couples. Or I would make you feel like you had to go alone or no one was for you or something. And it exposes maybe a major blind spot that the enemy would exploit before he can. 